want to invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We are continuing a series of messages that we began last week. Most years in September, not every year, but most of the time we uh, begin in the fall by looking at uh, our vision and our mission, just being reminded, refocusing on who God is wanting to shape us to be and what God has called us to be. Our vision, if you've been here, you probably know at least these three words, deeper, closer, bolder. That's a, a short, succinct way of getting at our vision, that, that God wants us to be people who are growing uh, deeper in intimacy with Christ, closer in relationships with one another, and bolder on mission for the lost. And, and you know also that, that we don't expect that that is something that we produce by our own striving or our own efforts. No, that is produced in us by, it's grounded in the gospel, in Christ's finished work, that Jesus went to the cross for us, that he bore the penalty for our sin, that we are washed and forgiven, and through faith in him we are also with his perfection. That's the gospel, the good news, and in light of that, and then empowered by his spirit, the, the, the spirit of the living God indwells us and empowers us and moves us, shapes us to be men and women, boys and girls, teenagers, who are growing in these ways. That's our vision, and our mission is making Jesus known, and we're going to walk through each part of that. Last week, we looked at the first part of the vision, that is, that God wants us to be growing in intimacy with Christ, and we looked at Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11, where he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's an invitation into daily fellowship, walking with Jesus. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So Jesus wants us to bind ourselves to him, to walk in step with him daily, and we talked a little bit about some of the ways that we can grow in that, but none of that is in order that God would accept us. It's in light of the fact that we are already redeemed through Christ. Today we turn to the second part of our vision, which is closer, closer in relationships with one another. Years ago, a friend of mine, Keith, some of you will know him, he's been here to preach. Uh, Keith is a tennis player, and uh, he, he talks to me about tennis sometimes, and I'm, I'm not really a tennis fan. Um, I, I grew up uh, loving sports, playing a lot of sports, baseball, basketball, volleyball, road hockey. I had three brothers, so ice hockey was, was out of the equation for us, but played a lot of sports, loved watching sports. Uh, I even got into tennis a little bit in my college years, playing it a little bit, but, but, but watching tennis, being a f- tennis fan, I've never described myself that way. Well, my friend Keith uh, recommended that I read a book, an autobiography of a professional tennis player, Andre Agassi, and I thought, really, a tennis player's autobiography, it just didn't appeal to me, and and, uh, but I decided, okay, I'll, I'll humor him. I, I didn't buy the book, and I generally don't hesitate to buy a book, but I went to the library and got it, and I thought, okay, I will read this. He said it's good, so I'll, uh, I'll try. And, and I got the book, and I began reading it, and I found it absolutely riveting. I was surprised how riveting I found it. Andre Agassi as he shares his story, his, his life was mapped out for him uh, while he was still in the crib. His moody and demanding father uh, groomed him to be a tennis champion. From a little kid, he was hitting thousands of tennis balls in the backyard court every day. When he was in the crib, his dad made a tennis ball mobile above him and, and taped a ping pong paddle to his hand. He had no choice. He was forced to do this, hours and hours and hours. And by the time he was 22, he'd won his first of what would be eight Grand Slams, and he was at the top of the world, the the tennis world. He had achieved uh, wealth and fame, celebrity, the game's highest honors, 
But in his book, he reveals that he was deeply unhappy, deeply unsatisfied. And he shares that he hated tennis. He hated it, even while he was achieving greatness in that sport. It truly was a fascinating book to read. It was at many moments heartbreaking and overwhelming at just seeing how lost he was. And then at other moments hopeful, just going, oh, he's, he's hungry. He might not know this, but he's hungry and thirsting for Jesus. And then seeing Christian influences in his life and just going, oh, oh, that Jesus would open his eyes. Now, I don't know if that has happened. I don't know that part of the story. He certainly wasn't a believer at the time he wrote this book. But, but it was a fascinating, riveting read. But here's one thing that I want to share from the book. This was something that I had never contemplated. Not that I had contemplated tennis a whole lot, but I'd never contemplated how lonely the game of tennis is. That in tennis, unless you're playing doubles, I suppose, if you, in tennis, you are all alone. It, no matter how many people are around you watching, you are on the court alone. You, you are not even allowed to speak to your coach during a tennis match. Here's what Andre Agassi wrote in this regard. Tennis is a sport in which you talk to yourself. No athletes talk to themselves like tennis players. Pitchers, golfers, goalkeepers, they mutter to themselves, of course, but tennis players talk to themselves and answer. In the heat of a match, tennis players look like lunatics in a public square, ranting and swearing and conducting Lincoln-Douglas debates with their alter egos. Why? Because tennis is so lonely. Only boxers can understand the loneliness of tennis players, yet, and yet boxers have their corner men and managers. Even a boxer's opponent provides a kind of companionship, someone he can grapple with and grunt at. In tennis, you stand face to face with the enemy, trade blows with him, but never touch him or talk to him or anyone else. The rules forbid a tennis player even talk to their coach while on the court. People sometimes mention that track and field runner as a comparably lonely figure, but I have to laugh. At least the runner can feel and smell his opponents. They're inches away. In tennis, you're on an island. Of all the games men and women play, tennis is the closest to solitary confinement. It never dawned on me the, the loneliness you could feel, the, the aloneness you could feel as a tennis player. It was, it was an interesting insight. I share this with you this morning because tennis, as Andre Agassi experienced it, this lonely game, should stand in stark contrast to the Christian life, the life as disciples of Jesus. I say should because too many believers today are living out their faith alone. They're living out their faith independently, in isolation from other believers, and that is not what Christ desires. That is not Christ's design for Christian discipleship. Through his life and his death for us, through faith in him, we are saved. We are forgiven. We are washed. We are clothed with his righteousness. We are brought into relationship with God. But there's more. We are adopted, is language that we find in Scripture, as sons and daughters. We are brought into a family. We are brought into the people of God. The church, the Christian life by God's design is not to be a solitary exercise, but rather life in fellowship with one another, life in community with spiritual brothers and spiritual sisters. It is life together. 
We're going to be, to this end, be looking at a few verses in Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17 in a moment. The Apostle Paul here is writing to a church in the city of Colossae, a church that he did not directly plant. Uh, Epaphras, his colleague, uh, a co-worker, is the one who planted the church. Likely Epaphras came to faith through Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus, and then he returned to his hometown of Colossae, and there he was used by God to plant and establish this church. Now, Paul, in this letter, like he does in many of his letters, uh, about the first half of the letter, Paul focuses on uh, what is true about Jesus, what is true uh, about what Jesus has done, what is true of us through faith in Jesus. That's the first half. And then the second half of the letter, he turns to us and says, okay, now in light of what's true, here's how we should live. Here's, Here's how we should respond as disciples of Jesus. That pattern holds true in the letter of to the Colossians. In the, the passage we're going to look in chapter 3, this is the second half of the letter. Paul is now speaking that in light of what is true about Jesus, what Jesus has done, and what's true of us through faith in him, here's how we should live. Immediately before the text I'm going to read momentarily, Paul has said, hey, here are some vices, some things that you should put off. Root these things out of your life. And now here in verses 12 to 17 are things that we are to put on, things that we are to uh, practice as his disciples. I invite you to follow along, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through, and through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want to do three things with you in the time we have remaining. First, I want to walk through the passage and and unpack it. There's a lot here, and so we're going to spend a a bunch of time doing that, looking closely at what Paul has written here. Secondly, I want to turn from what we see clearly to what is implied, what is implicit in this text, something that we must not miss. And then thirdly, I want to reflect with you, consider with you the practical implications of these words for our lives here at sunrise this morning. So first, let's walk through the text. There are a number of things that we are called to do, the things that we are, we are yeah, actions that we are to take. And I've divided what I'm going to look at into five headings, five categories, or five things that we're called to do, groups of things. But before that, I've already noted that, that Paul tends to, in the first half of his letter, speak to the realities, what is true in Christ and what's true of us because of Christ. Now, those things bleed into other parts of the letter, and that's what we encounter here right at the beginning of our text where Paul says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, he's speaking to their identity. He, he calls them God's chosen people. That's language that is used throughout Scripture, the Old Testament, to speak of Israel. The church is God's chosen people, and he says, dearly loved, holy. That is, they've been made holy through Christ, and they're dearly loved by God. And so that's identity. Paul, Paul can't even help himself. So as he speaks to how we should respond, there's this reminder, hey, this is who you are. God's chosen, dearly loved, holy people. Now let's turn to the things he calls us to do in light of that reality, in light of our identity in Christ. Verse 12, he says, first, 
put on or clothe yourselves with. And he's going to list off a number of qualities, characteristics that we are to live out. In in, uh, Romans, Paul puts it this way. He, He says to clothe ourselves with Christ, with the Lord Jesus Christ, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the sense here because as we're going to notice in a moment, all of these qualities, these characteristics that we are called to put on, to clothe ourselves with, are qualities, characteristics of Jesus. We are to put on Jesus. That's the sense. If you uh, have been around little kids, whether you're a parent or not, you know the reality that little kids enjoy dressing up. Just yesterday, I met a little sunriser dressed up in his little Spider-Man suit, right? We, we put on, when we're little, we put on clothing, we put on an outfit. That's, that's the sense here. We are to put on these qualities. We are to put on Christ. Let's look at the various things Paul notes. First is compassion. We are to put on, clothe ourselves with compassion. The, the word here, it, it, it's an interesting Greek word, splaxna. It speaks to our guts, right? It's that, that place where we feel deeply. We are to feel deeply for one another. We are to have this sense of compassion, this deep sensitivity to the sorrows, the pains of others. We are to put on kindness. Kindness is included as one of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the, the ways the Spirit manifests Himself in our lives as His, as his children. It, it is an expression of goodness towards other, the desire for the good of other. We are to clothe ourselves with compassion, deep sensitivity, and kindness, caring for the goodness of others, with humility, thirdly, which contrasts with pride, contrasts with self-centeredness, selfishness. That is, there is to be for us as disciples of Jesus a readiness to forego our own rights, our own desires for the sake of others. Fourth, we're called to put on gentleness, or meekness is how this word is sometimes translated. And if you've been with us through the Sermon on the Mount series that we were walking through last fall, you'll remember that one of the Beatitudes was blessed are the meek, and we talked about what is meekness. Meekness isn't weakness. It, meekness, gentleness, is strength under control. It's, it's caring more for the other, putting the well-being of others ahead of your own interests. It's, it's Christ on the cross. Christ could have called legions of, of angels in that moment, but Christ in his meekness, in his gentleness, remained there. He stayed on the cross. He was mocked. Why didn't you come down? He could have, but he chose to stay. He demonstrated meekness, gentleness. Fifthly, we're called to patience, to put on patience. And patience is it's this idea of long-suffering, not just waiting, but, but enduring the, the, the garbage, the wrong of others, that we would endure that. In, in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, it says love is patient. Love is long-suffering. Love, love deals with, it endures things when they're not all the way they should be. All of these qualities, characteristics, are things that we are to put on, to clothe ourselves with them. And what we should recognize is that these are all qualities, these are all characteristics of Jesus, exemplified most fully in the life of Jesus. We are created as God's image bearers. And that image has been marred by our sin, by our rebellion, and Christ's work of redemption is not merely to save us so that one day when we die, we go to heaven, Christ's work of redemption is a restoration of what was lost, of what was screwed up. 
He is restoring us into the people who reflect his image. So we are to put these things on. And in doing so, we reflect the likeness of Jesus. We are putting on Christ. We are clothing ourselves with Christ. Let me remind you of something really important for us to hear at this moment, and that is those two lines that undergird our whole vision statement. That we're to grow in these ways grounded in the gospel and empowered by the Spirit. Again, none of this putting on is in order that God would accept us, in order that God would love us, in order that we'd be saved. No, we are saved through Christ alone. Repentance and faith, trusting him, and we trust him and we are forgiven, washed, cleansed, covered with his righteousness, clothed with his perfection. And then in light of that, empowered by his indwelling spirit, these are the ways that God is changing us. And these are the ways in which we are to grow. So that's, that's all thing one we're called to. Let's look at the second thing we're called to. We're, we're called to forgive like Jesus. Look at that. Paul explicitly instructs his readers, forgive like Jesus. Verse 13, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Wow. Wow. That's significant. That's no small thing. To forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. That reminds us of the parable Jesus tells in Matthew 18 where the king forgives this massive debt for one of his servants. 10,000 bags of gold. And then that servant goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes him 100 silver coins and he has no mercy. That's the point of that parable is, hey, we've been forgiven lots. We're to forgive others. We're called here to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. How has Christ forgiven us? He has forgiven us for all our sin, all our wickedness, all our rebellion. On the cross, Jesus hung there, dying for us, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That's the call. That's that's huge. That we are to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. Bear with one another. Third thing that we're called to do at Paul continues, we're called to love like Jesus. Verse 14, and over all these virtues, put on love. That is, over compassion, over kindness, over humility, over gentleness, patience, over forgiving others like Jesus, uh, put on love. Love binds them all together. We are to love one another. Love binds them all together in perfect unity. Love is the crowning grace, the crowning gift, the supreme Christian virtue. Jesus said to his disciples, And the night he was betrayed, a new command, I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Again, that's quite the calling. As I've loved you, how did Christ love us? He gave himself for us. That's the call. We are to love one another like that. Fourth, we are called to the peace of Jesus. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you are called to peace. Here's something we need to recognize that Paul asserts we're members of one body, that is, we are joined together as his people, that that love leads us to unity, and peace, the peace of Christ that we've experienced leads us to peace. That is, here's how one commentator says, says that Christians having been reconciled to God, enjoying peace with God through Christ, should naturally live at peace with one another. Through faith in Jesus, we have peace with God. That is, before coming to faith in Jesus, we are his enemies. We are his enemies and, and there is no peace. There is, 
brokenness. But through faith in Christ, we have peace, shalom. We are rightly related with the Father. And the Bible tells us, Paul's saying here, that that, that same peace that we have with God is to be a peace that, that goes horizontally as well in our relationships as believers. Fifthly, we are called to speak about Jesus to one another. Paul has already said a lot, but he's not done. Verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. The message of Christ, the message of Christ, the gospel, the truth about who Jesus is, what what God has accomplished through Christ, who we are in light of Christ, that message is to, to dwell richly in us as we teach one another, as we admonish one another. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. All that Christ did, all that is true of us in Christ, that is to permeate our speech to one another as God's people. It, it, it is to be saturated with the message of Christ. It, it is to shape how we speak in one another's lives and that we are. That we are to teach one another. That is, we, we are to, to teach and admonish. That is, admonishing is correcting one another. We, we are to do that with this message of Christ. That is, we are to help one another grow in our grasp. We are to remind one another because we're prone to forget. Hey, God loves you. Hey, Christ went to the cross for you. Hey, this is not congruent with who you are in Christ. Let's, let's journey together. It's, it's that kind of speaking the truths of the gospel into one another's lives that we are called to do as we teach, as we admonish. This message of Christ, the, the gospel message is what we proclaim to one another. That's a lot. Paul says all these things in these few verses. These things are to characterize our lives as disciples of Jesus. Paul says to us, put these things on. Clothe yourselves with these things. Manifest compassion and kindness. Manifest humility and gentleness and patience. Forgive one another. Love like Christ loves. Let his peace characterize your relationships with one another. And as you talk to one another, as you're engaged with one another, teach one another, admonish one another with the message of Christ. That's a lot. That's, that's all that we're called to as disciples of Jesus. So let's turn from what this text says to something that is implicit here. Something that we need to recognize. I haven't drawn your attention to it explicitly, but it's here, it's implicit, it's everywhere. These verses drip with it, and I'm sure that many of you have already recognized uh, what I want to note uh, that we need to recognize in this text. We dare not miss it, though I would contend that we are prone to do just that because of the ways in which our culture has shaped us. David Foster Wallace tells a story, I've probably shared it before, two young fish swimming along, and they encounter an older fish, and the older fish says to them, How's the water, boys? And the young fish don't say anything. They just swim on. And then they say, what's water? <laughs> they, they don't recognize their context. They, they don't get it. And so there are ways in which, if we're not attentive, we will miss the ways in which we are being shaped by our context. What am I talking about? Well, one of them is that, that we have a great tendency to read God's word and to approach the Christian life individualistically. Like we're tennis players, alone. And I'd contend that that is especially true for those of us who have been raised in a Western culture. 
Uh, individualism in the Western world is it's the, it's the context in which we live. It's this idea that, that the individual's interests should take precedence over the interests of the group, over the family. There are many other cultures where, where things are different, but certainly in the West, it's very much about you, about me. Well, what do I want? What's good for me? In regards to this, sociologist Reginald Bibby writes this. If religion is to awaken from its slumbering state in Canada, its first hurdle will be to get its own house in order. The devastating damage caused by individualism needs to be assessed and addressed. It has been extensive. What Bibby is highlighting is the fact that, that the doctrine of individualism, this putting me at the center, is impacting Christians in the Canadian context. He's a Canadian sociologist. And it is doing harm to the church. It's doing harm to our lives. And this is a danger that we face as disciples of Jesus living here in Canada. And, and so we can come to this text and we can read this individualistically. Okay, what does Jesus want me to do? Okay, I'm supposed to do this. Have these. But, but here's what we can miss. We can't do any of this by ourselves. Do you see that? We cannot obey what we are called to do in this text independently of others, apart from relationships with others. Compassion. Put on compassion. Compassion is about a deep sensitivity to the sorrows and needs of others. We need to be engaged with others if we're going to have compassion for others, kindness, an expression of goodness for others that, that is necessarily relational. Uh, humility, sacrificing my rights for the rights of others requires that I be in relationships with those others. Gentleness, putting the well-being of others ahead of my own. Patience, enduring the junk, enduring the wrong of others. These are exercised necessarily, practiced necessarily, in relationship with others. Paul is calling us to, to engage in things that by their very nature require that we be living in community. And he's speaking to a church. He's speaking to a local church in Colossae. See, we need to understand this. When Paul wrote this letter, it didn't get photocopied and everyone had a, a scroll on their bed a bedside nightstand go home and do their little devotions. No, he wrote a letter to a church and it would have been brought to the city of Colossae and, and read to the church. This was a word to the church, to the people of God, holy and dearly loved. Furthermore, I think we're, we're called to forgive one another like Jesus. Here's an uncomfortable reality. If we're gonna forgive one another, I just wanna point out what we might not Immediately think of, if we're going to forgive one another, that means we need to be engaged intimately enough that there's stuff to forgive. You think about that? Right? This isn't just like, hey, someone parked in my parking spot and I'm a little cheesed, but whatever. I'll deal with it. No, th this, is, this is about our lives rubbing up against each other where our sin, all of a sudden, you get an elbow from me and you're like, hang on, Dennis, that, that wasn't kind. And you need to come to me and say, hey, you, you, that, wasn't, that wasn't right what you did or what you said. And, and then I, in, in humility, if I'm obeying this, go, you're right, please forgive me. And, and there's forgiveness and restoration of what's broken. You can't do this without relationships. And, and then we're called to, to love, to love like Jesus, to let the peace of Christ 
shape our relationships. That is, God's redemption is not only peace between us and him, it is to be peace horizontally with one another. And he calls us to teach one another, to admonish one another. That's uncomfortable, Jesus. Right? And this isn't just like, hey, here, this is for pastors or elders. No, this is the body of Christ. You are all called to teach. Now, maybe not, maybe not publicly, maybe in one-to-one over a coffee. We're all called to admonish, that is, to, to correct one another and say, hey, sister, hey, brother, this doesn't seem right in your life. Can, can we do, I, I, I've experienced this. I'm guilty of the same thing, whatever it is, but that we come alongside and try and correct, admonish with the message of the gospel. Christ died for us. This is incongruent with that life in Christ. Let's walk in obedience together. What is implicit throughout this text is that we need one another. We, we need to live in fellowship, in, in relationships with one another if we are to obey Christ. Being in Christ means that we are brought into the people of God. One of my professors always said, God is not in the business of populating heaven with a bunch of individuals. He is forming a people for his name. And we live out that reality of being part of the people of God in a local community, in a church like Sunrise. And so being part of the people of God means more than periodically showing up and sitting in a chair for 90 minutes. Though gathering for worship like this is an important part of being the church, but it's not the only part of the church. And certainly we can show up and put in our pew time, if you will. Younger generation won't understand that. We used to sit in pews Long wooden benches. Putting in chair time, whatever you want to call it, it, isn't it. But we need to share our lives with one another. They need to rub up against each other. We need others and others need us. And we cannot obey Christ. You cannot faithfully follow Jesus alone like a tennis player. Now I recognize there are exceptions when people come to Christ in places where there's not the freedom that we have. Sometimes there are lone believers who are isolated. But that's not God's design. That's not what he's called us to. He's called us to fellowship, to relationships, to community. He's called us to be the people of God, loving one another and, and living out the character of Christ in our relationships. He's called us to be a, an outpost of heaven, One of the things I prayed before and I pray almost every Sunday is that God would so work in us that other people would see our love for one another and be drawn to him. That they would come and they'd go, there's something different about you guys. This is weird. I don't get it. That would be an amazing compliment, wouldn't it? For people to see the people at sunrise love each other. The people at sunrise forgive each other. It's not about their own interests. It's not just about what, what do I want. They, 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 they forgo that for the sake of others. They challenge one another. They, they speak the gospel truths in one another's lives. It's, it's this amazing community, not amazing because of us, but amazing because of what Jesus is doing in us. But we cannot do this independently of one another. We are called into his people. In fact, when Jesus... Jesus says some startling things, things that shock us. He redefines family even. He says this is our primary identity marker, not not our nuclear families. Certainly we have responsibilities 
and a deep love for our nuclear families. But Jesus says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. He, he calls us the family of God. And, and, and we need to prioritize loving the family of God. In fact, we, we don't get this. We might find this shocking, but there are people, maybe some of you have experienced this, people in other places where Christianity is illegal. They come to faith in Jesus and they lose their family. Sometimes they are threatened with death. And all they have is the body of Christ. We're called to prioritize relationships here. He's called us into family. We are, look around you, take a moment. Everyone's scared to make eye contact. We are the family of Christ. Brothers and sisters sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you. We are called to love one another. We are called to live out these realities in fellowship with one another. That leads us thirdly to considering the implications of this for our lives today. If this community is going to be a central reality in our lives, if we're going to live out our discipleship in fellowship with one another, I want to ask the question, what needs to change? Where is Jesus poking around in your life? What would it look like if you and I were to say, you know what, I I need to prioritize these relationships. We have other relationships with family, with colleagues, with friends, but what would it look like if, if we, in obedience to Jesus, say, I need to prioritize fellowship in the church with my brothers and sisters? What would it look like for us to make, make time and space in our crowded schedules to walk together, to love one another, to bear with one another, to, to care deeply for the needs and the sorrows of others, to to exercise all these characteristics, qualities that Jesus has called us to. One of the ways we can do this is by participating in SOMA. We're in a small group in the midweek. We gather and we share our lives together. We share our burdens and our joys. We pray together. We share a meal together. We study the scripture together. We live on mission together. That's one way. It's not the only way. What does it look like? to engage intentionally in a life where we will live these things out, where we can walk in obedience as disciples, where we live in community? What would it look like in your life to prioritize relationships in the church? What would it take to make that space? What might Jesus want you to say no to so that you can say yes to to closer relationships with brothers and sisters? Years ago, this is not a recent story, but a guy named Eric Hardy, he was working in the toy industry. He and his wife, Jeannie, moved to Los Angeles with their kids, and it's hard to find a house that they could afford. They managed to find a house at the time for about 400 grand, but it was, it was not in an ideal neighborhood, not in a good school district, none of the things that they would have wanted, but they moved in, and they connected with a the church there and, and uh, began to put down roots and years later, a number of years later, Eric was offered a huge promotion. They wanted to move his family from Los Angeles to New England. 
a huge salary increase in New England. He could afford a, a house that would be way bigger, way nicer for 200 grand instead of the 400 grand he'd spend on this place in L.A. His kids would be in a far better school district. And you know what they decided? They, they had put down roots and connected with a church community where, where others had loved them, where others had invested and loved their kids. And they had, they had in turn, they had loved others there. They were so deeply connected that they said, no, they decided to stay Be, because of their relationships with the community of, of God's people. What would it look like, brothers and sisters, if we began to make decisions in our lives for the sake of our fellowship as the church? What if our relationships with one another actually were the priority and not the last thing we do? What would that look like to model the importance of this? Parents, what does that look like for children's activities? Increasingly, if you go online and Google this, regular attendance, again, it's not only about attendance, but it's a commitment to relationships. Regular church attendance is considered by some twice a month. What kind of relationships, uh, what kind of priorities are we modeling if that's what we're living out? In an article in Christianity Today, Joseph Hellerman writes this, we keep our families so busy that little time remains to develop the kinds of relationship God intends for his faith family. And when we do this, we teach our kids the wrong relational priorities. Consider this. A lot of research has been done into why millennials are leaving the church in, in droves. Millennials are those born in 1980 to around the mid-90s. And what's fascinating in that research is you can look and say, what's keeping those who stay? And, and here's what they found. Intergenerational... Intergenerational relationships topped the list of reasons young people remain connected to their faith communities. Those who stayed were twice as likely to have close personal friendship with an adult in the church as those who left. You know, one of the things that says is that every one of us has the, the opportunity, the privilege, the call to invest in loving the younger generation. Whether you're a parent or not, whether you're married or not, single people, all of us have the privilege, the opportunity to invest in, in loving young people, in loving children, in loving teenagers, in reaching out, building those friendships that God can use in profound ways to help those young people grow up in and maintain their faith. The church should not be an afterthought. Our relationships with one another should not be the last thing on our list of priorities. We are called to Christ, and in being called to Christ, we are called into community with one another. We need one another. We need to share our lives with one another. We cannot obey what Christ calls us to individualistically, alone. Does life together get messy? 100% it does. It's a lot simpler when when we're not together as a family, Chrislene and I have embarked for the second year as empty nesters. Our youngest is off at college. Our older two have been gone for a number of years now. And so it's a neat season in many ways, and I think it is the right season for parents. You want to launch your kids. And, and there's some neat things about it. Chrislene and I are enjoying some sweet time together as a couple. And, and it's also pretty neat that there's not crap all over the place like there sometimes was when kids are around. Things stay where they're supposed to be or they get put away and I can have snacks that stay there and they don't disappear. A funny story, Brennan and I both like the same kind of chips. 
A couple of weeks ago, before we brought him to BC, he was spending a week at camp volunteering. He left Sunday afternoon. Sunday night, I went to the grocery store and bought a few things, including a bag of chips, put it in the pantry. Thought I'd be there later in the week. And then later in the week, when I went there, it was gone. And I remembered, oh, Brennan came into town to play volleyball one night. He came here, and he took my chips. That doesn't happen anymore. He's in BC. There are some things that are neat about this season, but I wouldn't, Christine and I would not give up the messiness of raising our boys for anything. There was a richness in living our lives as a family of faith. There is a great richness. And it's, it's something Christ calls us to. Not in order to get his love. We're loved. We're, we're redeemed. We've, we've been saved. And now we're, we're called and privileged to live out our faith with one another as his family, as brothers and sisters. The Christian life, the life that we have been called into when we were called to Christ is not a solitary life. It is not like playing tennis. It's just not. By God's design, we are called into the church. We are part of a faith community, a family of faith, the people of God. And I want to leave you with this. What will obedience to Christ mean for you? How does your life, how does my life need to change? If I'm going to faithfully live this out, how will my calendar have to be altered? What is Jesus saying to you? Amen.